Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 76th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of COVID-19 and vaccines with Dr. Paul Offed. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 29th, 2020, there are 10,195,680 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 9,695,375 Friday. Of those, 2,562,921 are in the United States. That's up from 2,453,044 reported on Friday. There are now a total of 125,927 deaths reported from COVID-19 in the United States, up from 124,891 deaths reported on Friday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Eric Gore, 48, carried on a family tradition as a Philadelphia firefighter. This appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer June 10th by Gary Miles. By all accounts, Eric Gore was a quiet man. He was private, said older brother Lamont. He didn't do a lot of talking, said colleague Lisa Forrest. Instead, Mr. Gore made noise with his actions. He was a Philadelphia firefighter, published writer, former Philly policeman, former court stenographer, world traveler, father and husband and philanthropist. And even though he didn't say much, he could say it in English, Spanish and Mandarin. He was the kind of guy who would give money to kids he met even when he couldn't spare it, said Lamont Gore, also a Philly firefighter with ladder 15 in Frankfurt. I had to tell him to stop it and spend that money at home. Mr. Gore, 48 died June 2nd at Temple University Hospital due to COVID-19. Like his brother and late father, Edward, Mr. Gore found a home away from home with the fire department. He grew up in Southwest Philly, near 58th and Baltimore, and graduated from Bartram High School in 1990. He went on to work for three years as a Philadelphia police officer, then joined the fire department in 1996 and worked across the city for more than 23 years, spending 12 years at Engine 61 in Olney. In 2002, Mr. Gore and others in his unit were cited for helping rescue two children and an adult from a burning home. He had been assigned to Engine 37 in Chestnut Hill for the last two years. It's in our blood, Lamont Gore said of the family's civic service. His wife, Deborah, is a police detective, and many relatives have worked for either the police or fire departments. Despite his laid-back nature, Mr. Gore impressed those around him with a no-nonsense approach to work and his wide array of interests. Forrest, a captain in the fire department, said Mr. Gore was an action person. He never started any trouble, but he was not one to back down either. Lamont Gore said Eric was the perfect little brother when they were growing up. Little brothers are supposed to take whatever big brothers do and smile about it, he joked, and Eric did that. Mr. Gore was so reserved 
that Lamont did not know that his brother had visited China until he had already returned. His 2016 novel, Vengeance Obtained, was about Marcel de Cray, a 900-year-old vampire. He found time to do a lot of stuff, Lamont Gore said. He is to be posthumously promoted to lieutenant. I'd like to turn to our discussion today, and I'm really thrilled to have Dr. Paul Offit here today on COVID Calls. Let me introduce him. Paul Offit is a pediatrician specializing in infectious diseases and an expert on vaccines, immunology, and virology. He is the co-inventor of a rotavirus vaccine that has been credited with saving hundreds of lives every day. Offit is the Maurice R. Hillman Professor of Vaccinology, Professor of Pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He has been a member of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Offit is a board member of Every Child by Two and a founding board member of the Autism Science Foundation. His most recent book is Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. He's also the author of Bad Advice, or Why Celebrities, Politicians, and Activists Aren't Your Best Source of Health Information. He's also the author of many other books. I'll just name a few other titles here, Pandora's Lab, as well as The Cutter Incident, How America's First Polio Vaccine Led to Today's Growing Vaccine Crisis, and Deadly Choices, How the Anti-Vaccine Movement Threatens Us All, which came out with basic books in 2011. It was selected by Kirkus Reviews and Booklist as one of the best nonfiction books of that year. Paul Offit, thanks for making time. Welcome to COVID Calls. Thanks, Scott. My pleasure. But I'd like to start the way I've been starting all of these calls, which is just to ask uh, where are you calling in from and what's the COVID-19 situation there today? I am in Avalon, New Jersey, in a, at a shore house um, with my wife, um, my daughter and her boyfriend, who now is uh, unfortunately in a uh, unwittingly part of a scared straight program for being part of our family. Um, my son, who was here just recently, left to go to San Francisco, and then my sister's son, my, my nephew, and his pregnant wife. So we had seven people here, and now we're down to six, but um, that's that's the clan. And what the situation is, is, you know, it, it's crowded. It's actually crowded here. It's a shore town. And um, just a couple of days ago, at a local uh, bar and restaurant, there were more than 100 people there. They were all crowded together. Nobody had a mask on. And you just see a situation like that and wonder why it is that they, one, that they did it. I can't believe that that bar or restaurant was allowed to do that. Two, that the mayor uh, allowed that to happen, that the police force allowed that to happen. I mean, we're just asking for trouble. It's hard to watch. In a situation like that, I, I wonder how you restrain yourself. I mean, you can't right every wrong in, in the public health world, the medicine world, but what are your feelings when you see that kind of crowding happen? Well, we wrote to the, we wrote to the mayor. I mean, we, we got in touch with the mayor and said, this is what just happened in your community. I mean, this is, is uh, puts those in that room at risk, and it puts those who, who then come in contact with people who were in that, that room at risk. It's just, uh, it's unconscionable. It's, an, it's, it's exceptionally, it's such a stupid, it's just selfish. I mean, you know, you wear a mask to protect you and to protect others. Uh, you know, there, there was a young crowd, obviously, but young crowds do ultimately interact with older crowds. And you even when you're a young person, you can still die from this virus. Your, your risk is less, but it's not zero. Has there been uh, any 
social protests there? Anything in reaction to George Floyd down at the shore? A little bit, yeah. There have been a, Rio Grande, which is not far from here, had a, a small protest. Um, but this, you know, this frankly is Trump country. I mean, this, you know, this this area, Avalon, New Jersey, is Trump country. You see, occasionally the the uh, you know the, the uh, planes will fly by with the banners that say, you know, Trump 2020. So, um, yeah, right. I got to get out of here. That's what I'm saying. But yeah, <laughs> got it. I got it. Well, there's a lot of ground I want to cover today. Certainly, we want to talk about. Uh, the vaccine situation for COVID-19, but I'd like to ramp up to it uh, for people who may not be as familiar with your work. I, I guess I'd like to start, if you don't mind, just to get a little sense of you, um, how you first got interested in in medicine, uh, if you don't mind sharing that with us, and, and then how your interest grew into this sort of really important space around vaccine development. I think the real answer to why I got interested in medicine was that I was... Um I had uh, I was in polio ward when I was five years old, and and I just remember seeing those children as vulnerable and helpless and alone. I I didn't have polio. I had had a uh, poorly performed surgery on my right foot that has has been a problem ever since. But um, that that landed me in that polio ward for about six weeks. And you know that this was at a time mm-hmm. before there were play therapists or you know or pet therapy, you know kind of pet therapy or. Um, or uh, parents couldn't stay there. There was only one visiting hour a week. You know, my parents were able to come from on Sundays from two to three. My mother couldn't come because she was ill. Uh, my father snuck in one day and then then was barred from coming again. So I just was, you know, I just remember how isolating and alone that was. And I guess at some level we all treat ourselves. And I guess that's what happened to me. I just saw those children as 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 um, victims. And I think that's always been true for me ever since. I think it's why I went into pediatrics. I think because I was in a polio ward is why I wanted to pill pediatric infectious disease, I think is why I wrote a book about the Cutter incident, which was a polio vaccine gone badly. Um, and I think all my books at their, have at their heart kind of child advocacy. So you said this is when you were five, you were in the hospital for six weeks. That's right. Wow. So you must have made friends with the kids in the ward, I would imagine, too. Nope, not at all. It was very isolating. We, we all just were in um, our separate beds or isolated or, you know, sort of modern lungs or, you know, traction. No, there was no interaction. Um, not at all. You were just alone. I mean, I, my, my bed was right near the window that overlooked the uh, front door or the entrance to the hospital. I just remember staring out that window for all my waking hours, hoping that my parents would come visit me, save me, but it didn't happen. That sense of isolation, I mean, it's really struck me about COVID-19, too. It's such a, I mean, maybe the way we experience disaster more generally, it's often more in public and pandemic, particularly this one. So much of it has been in private. I know not from the physician's perspective, maybe, but from the general public, so much of the suffering and death has been behind the walls of the hospital or just sort of out of sight. And I've wondered what kind of impact that has on the ability of the public to rouse the appropriate amount of fear or empathy. I don't know how you think about that. No, I think it's a really good point. I, you know, you have to deny reality to, for example, go out into a crowded area and not wear a mask. I mean, how much more information do we have need that there's, you know, been been millions of cases and and you know, more than a hundred thousand deaths in this country. I mean, it, it's it's um, it's all there to see. But but I I guess it's just for most people a statistic. I, most people probably don't know someone who's died. I mean, I do know someone who's died of COVID-19, but I think m- many people don't know that. So they just see this as 
fake news. I mean, you see a president who's who doesn't wear a mask, who who basically has just been denying this for the last couple of months, and they're willing to deny it too. It's just um, hard to believe you can deny reality like this one, but people seem to be able to do that. You know, you have public health officials who, are, who recommend wearing masks who are threatened. You have security guards who recommend people wear masks who are threatened. It's just, it's madness. I mean, it's a country that was founded on individual rights and freedoms, and we take that to its illogical end, which is to say that it's your right then to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection. I mean, it's not. It certainly shouldn't be. So I have been reluctant to invite uh, physicians on to COVID calls up to now just because of the uh, pressing uh, needs on your time. And Esther Chernak, who's a colleague of mine at Drexel, been kind enough to come on several times. And she had suggested I speak to you. And one of the reasons I was really thrilled to talk with you, I mean, I want to get your perspective on the full scope of what we've seen, how it's played out. But I'm particularly interested in the earlier phase. When, what kind of things do you watch for? What were you, if you can reconstruct January, February, March, in that period of time, it feels like 10 years ago now, what were you watching for in terms of public health statistics as you were making sense of what was happening? Can you walk us through a little bit, like your sense of concern, alarm, sketch it out for us a little bit? I, I completely underrated what was about to happen in this country. I mean, I did some early interviews at the beginning of March, and I, I couldn't imagine that this virus would do what influenza does, which is just, just typical, you know, epidemic seasonal influenza does. I mean, influenza this year, for example, uh, caused about 50 million cases. Um, it caused about 780,000 people to be hospitalized, and it caused about 60,000 people to die. I never imagined this virus would be close to that and said that on a few national and international news programs, thus officially making an idiot of myself. Um, and, and the reason I did it was I looked at other countries like China or Japan or Singapore or South Korea and looked at the, how big those populations were, the number of cases and deaths that occurred in that population, then extrapolated it our population, not realizing we'd be so bad at this that, you know, that we have 4% of the world's population and, you know, 20 20% of its deaths, more than 20% of its deaths. I never imagined we would be this bad at it, but I was wrong. I underestimated how much we were able to ignore public health advice and, advice and, and how bad we were at, at getting personal protective equipment out there, how bad we were at restricting travel initially. I mean, how bad we were at, at having clear direction from, from the administration and at some level clear direction even from governors. And we just sort of got worse and worse and we're still fighting this. We're still catching the tail of this virus. I never imagined we would be this bad at, 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 at doing this. We're, we're one, if not the worst, we're certainly one of the worst countries in the world at getting on top of this. When you're when you read about um, a pandemic or an epidemic when it's still at that phase, what kind of what do you read? I mean, do you look at the WHO announcements? I mean, you're keeping up, obviously, with medical literature. Just coming back to January, because you're as you're saying, you didn't expect it would grow into something worse than seasonal flu. And then and we'll come to maybe some of the reasons why it did. But those sort of first data points that you're looking for every year, where are you pulling those from? Right. So, so again, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm a virologist. So um, my, I'm on sure. the NIH's so-called active group, which was a group that was put together by Francis Collins, who's head of NIH, to try and facilitate or accelerate the development of a vaccine. So that's been my focus. Okay. Remember, there's about 4,000 articles uh, published a day in the world uh, medical and scientific literature about this virus. So I don't read all of them. I, I just read the things that are related to what I'm interested in, which is sure. the, the biology of this particular virus and the uh, the vaccine story. 
that that's where I focus my my attention. Okay, and so as we move into March, and you're saying you you, you sort of said you underestimated it, and you've started to change your opinion as things I presume and move into March and April. Um, what do you think were the critical points there? Because it, it won't be enough later as we go back and try to reconstruct this to say it was just Trump. That to me seems like a question and not an answer. Can we go a little further with that? What were the key missed opportunities there, particularly in that month of March, that might have brought the death toll down where we are now? I think, I think although obviously Trump doesn't help in this, um, with his consistent sort of denial of what's going on and his, uh, his inability to wear a mask, um, I, I do think that, that it's us. I mean, I think it's the nature of this country. I, I think we, um, I think Trump is more a symptom than the problem. I mean, what, he, what Trump shows is that, um, that we're willing to deny reality. At a certain level, in many things. I mean, you know, he takes the phrase "climate change" off of the EPA's website. It tells you he he denies reality. When when he has an inauguration that has one third the size of that for Obama, I mean, you I see overhead, uh, you know, pictures of those two inaugurations. It's clearly a huge difference. And and he asks his 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 followers to to believe him. And he, he said, "quote Believe what I say, and not what you see." I mean, he's a cult leader in many ways. And to be a cult leader, you have to um, be willing as, as a follower to restrict access to information or just to deny information, which we all sort of put under the rubric of, of fake news. So I think we're, we're a country that's willing to do that. We have a significant percentage of people who are willing to do that, to sort of deny reality. We also, we're also at our hearts libertarians. We don't like to have the government tell us what to do. We're, we're, we like to be individual actors. There's a cowboyism that, that allows us to not wear masks when we're out there and say, the government shouldn't tell me to wear mess. It's my decision whether to wear a mess. But again, you're making a decision for other people. So I think there's a lot that goes into how bad we are at this. But at heart, in many ways, it's who we are. Mm. And have there been particular states or governors or leaders in any sector that you feel like have, have managed it as managed it well? I mean, what are the bright spots to the extent that there are some? Trump, obviously not. But where have you taken some solace? I think Cuomo eventually managed it well. I mean, initially he was letting people who had COVID-19 go into nursing homes, which was not a good idea. Um, but eventually, I think he got on top of it and, 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 and uh, you know, was have daily conferences and let people know where he stood. And, and, you know, he really shut things down and things got better in an area where it was awful. Um, so there are there are some some governors who've been better. Um, I think Phil Murphy in New Jersey has been been pretty good, but then there's you know people like DeSantis in uh, in Florida or, or the governor of uh, Texas who are you know sort of they were gonna you're gonna be loyal patriots to to Donald Trump and just trying to deny this and let's all go back to work and now they're suffering those decisions. Remind people you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking today to Dr. Paul Offit. You can get your questions in on YouTube Live. Just put them right there in the YouTube Live chat. You can put them up on Twitter. Just tag me at US of Disaster, and you can email them to me if you want to. SGK23 at Drexel.edu. I I want to just stick with this just a little bit more about Trump, just because you're an expert in. Uh, bad advice, uh, the willingness of celebrities to give medical advice, quack medicine. Were you surprised by the hydroxychloroquine episode, the 
the household cleaners episode, the light therapy episode. Did that surprise you at all? Um, well, not from Trump. I mean, I think he's not the science president. I think when he's asking you to, you know, essentially take Clorox chewables, I made that up, but, you know, the, the notion that disinfectants inject, ingested or injected could cure this. I mean, he's he's just not very smart when it comes to science. So, so that he says those things doesn't surprise me. What really upset me, and that was the Food and Drug Administration. I mean, they he was able to bully the Food and Drug Administration to, under the, the EUA, Emergency Use Authorization, allow for that product to be used when there was no evidence that it was of value. None. Wait for a controlled trial. I mean, you can do a controlled trial pretty quickly. There were plenty of people in this country who had the disease. You know, treat half, don't treat the other half. You can do a 1,000 people very quickly, as we did with the antiviral drug remdesivir. Do that. Wait for that. And then, you know, give it at, at least an approval, if not licensure, for, for that, you know, for that uh for that disease, they didn't wait. And so we know, now we know from placebo-controlled trial trials that it not only didn't work to treat it, didn't even work to prevent this disease, and it had known cardiac toxicities. I mean, you knew that, that that drug could cause arrhythmias. So it did far more hard than good. It didn't do any good. And I blame the FDA for that. I think the FDA was at its worst for that. And that, that's what upset me the most. I mean, that Trump says stupid things is not a shocker. Um, I do think that uh, the FDA was willing to be bullied by this, this man, um, this administration. Mm -hmm really depressing to me. That raises some general concern that people have raised throughout the presidency about what's going on at NOAA or EPA and other sectors. But I guess, speak for myself, I've kind of felt like CDC, HHS, FDA, that maybe there's political appointees at the top, but these places are stacked with career scientists whose reputations are, they take very seriously. They take the science very seriously. What's happened with the governance within something like FDA to allow that to happen. Yeah, so the science has been politicized. I mean, I think the NIH is generally untouched. But I, you look at CDC, you have, you know, these amazing, brilliant, uh, dedicated public health officials like Nancy Messonnier or Ann Shuckett. You know, we should be hearing from them every day. We should be hearing from the CDC every day, much as we heard about it during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And there were people who came from West Africa to the United States who had the disease. This was obviously far less of a threat to the United States than, than this virus is. But that's who we should be hearing from. And they've gotten sidelined politically, I guess. The Trump administration didn't like what, what Nancy Messonnier said early on when she said it's not a matter of whether we're going to have a problem in this country, but when. I mean, that in retrospect, that's about as mild of a statement as you could imagine. And she said early on, I think on the Rachel Maddow show, that this would change our life. And then you never heard from her again. Mm. And, and that's ridiculous. I mean, this is a, I don't know if you know Nancy Messonnier, but she's just a brilliant dedicated public health official. She's just the voice that you want to hear, as is Ann Shuckett, uh, who's the assistant CDC director. But those, those aren't the voices you hear, which is too bad, because I guess the administration doesn't like what they're going to say. So you hear from, from Deborah Burks, or you hear from Robert Redfield, and I would much rather hear from the other two. Are there any kind of controls in place, though, in a place like CDC or, or FDA with a uh, inspector general process? I mean, I guess many of us, myself included, are wondering, like, how will you make it right? How do you learn from these kind of kind of failures? Again, it's not, it won't be enough in the long run for us to shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's the Trump administration. Don't we have to learn from these kind of key failures in these agencies? I mean, you know, scientists walk out of the EPA. Uh, you know, lawyers walk out of the Department of Justice. Inspectors general get fired or leave. I mean, I think what we're learning is that we have 
uh, a, a the, the principal law enforcement agent of the land, uh, you know, William Barr is is Trump's personal lawyer, and so so we've lost the rule of law in this land. And I, I guess the only way out of this is to change the administration, hopefully in November, because I don't know how we live through four more years of this. It's just it's nightmarish. I'm a Democrat. I don't know if that came through with any of this, but. <laughs> Although I'd like to say this, by the it way. did. But my, my parents were conservative Republicans. I really think if this were, if the Republican Republicans actually were what Republicans once were, which they aren't anymore, this has nothing to do with conservatism and, and nothing to do with really the, what the Republican Party was. I mean, there really is no choice. I don't know what this party is. It's like the white supremacist party. Well, I don't think anybody, no matter their party affiliation, would want government to turn its back on obvious scientific. Uh, knowledge that can save lives. I mean, I think that seems to be, and I think the polls are sort of holding that up as well, even in tech states like Texas and Florida, where people are still listening to public health officials, despite the fact that they're in those those environments. I wanted to just make a comment as a historian um, who doesn't also uh, develop vaccines. I just am a historian, and it's enough for me to try to write books, and I can't keep up with the pace of your books. I have no idea how you are so productive. Um, and probably you should write a book about how you do all that. But I, I want to turn to your thinking about the history of medicine here a little bit. And just a kind of general question to start, what are the pandemics and epidemics that you still think about? Even ones you may have written about, what are the ones that you keep going back to in history and you, and you keep learning from? Well, I mean, the, the most Devastating ones. Obviously, with the flu pandemic of 1918-1919, there were hundreds of millions died. Um, the smallpox epidemic, you know, which killed one out of every three people that was infected, was you know killed probably 500 million people in the world's history. You know, it changed, it changed the course of European history. You know, as monarch after monarch, you know, was felled by this virus. But I, it, the disease that captured me, obviously, is right why I wrote a book about it, was polio. I mean, that that to me was such a devastating illness. One, it attacked healthy young children. It paralyzed them for the rest of their lives or put them in iron lungs for, the, for what remained of their lives. Um, it killed 1,500 children a year. And nobody really knew how you got it. You know, it was only one of every 200 people who got polio that was paralyzed by it. So what you saw was just the tip of a very big iceberg. And, you know, that affected my life because... You know, my parents, I was a child of the 50s, and my parents were wouldn't let us go to public swimming pools in the summer. I think it's why summer camps existed, to get people out of the cities so they could go to more uh, rural areas and try and get them out of the, the way of, of harm's way of polio. But that, that was just such a devastating, devastating illness. And and there were just so many heroes associated with that, you know, people who... who uh, who did who did the work uh, to, to eventually uh, eliminate it? I mean, we haven't had a case of natural or wild type polio in this country since the 1970s, when it dev it was it was all we talked about in the 50s, 40s, mm. 60s. What was the what was the process of, of vaccine development around polio? I mean, and more generally, like what were the rules about making a vaccine in those in those days? Right. Well. Very similar to the rules today. I mean, you, you had two two polio vaccines that were made in the 1930s, one by Maurice Brody, another by John Comer, which were bad vaccines. I mean, it's turned out that they actually caused polio um, as much as they prevented it. So that was bad. And it set polio research back about 20 years. And then in the 1950s, Jonas Salk stepped up along with other researchers 
figured out how to grow the virus in non-neural cells, meaning cell, not cells from the brain or spinal cord, which can be problematic. And um, and then he, you know, grew up the virus and activated it with formaldehyde. And 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 to me, you know, it's it's relevant today. That story is relevant to today because as bad as polio was, as terrifying as it was, as paralyzing as it was, we waited for a phase three trial before we we put that vaccine out into the arms of children. Um, we, um, mm. you know, the vaccine was tested by Jonas Salkin, about 700 people in the Pittsburgh area. It was safe. It certainly looked to induce a great immune response, but we waited to do a trial of 420,000 children got a vaccine, 200,000 got placebo, and that took a year to do. And then when the vaccine was shown to be safe and effective, then and only then did we put it out there. And I just like, see, what worries me the most about this is we're coming up to November 3rd. And you hear com company after company are talking about October. Even Tony Fauci has talked about October, and, and I just don't see how we can have phase three trials, meaning 30,000 people, you know, 20,000 vaccine, 10,000 uh, placebo, or 15,000 vaccine, 15,000 placebo, which is what the NIH uh, active group is now recommending. I don't see how we get that done by October. So when they're saying October, I just worry that they're going to, you know, pull one of the vaccines out of the so-called warp speed bucket, which is basically a manufacturing thing where vaccines are being mass produced at risk because you don't know whether the vaccine is going to work or it's safe. And say, look, we mm -hmm. have we tested this in a few thousand people. It looks like it's safe. Um, we get great immune responses, although the immune responses aren't always predictive of, of, uh, of protection, as we know from probably half the vaccines that are currently on the market. And and then say, okay, so we're going to put it out there. And then really, what then essentially what they're saying is we're going to learn whether it was effective after it's already out there commercially. And I think it's a fragile vaccine confidence in this country. I really hope we don't do that, but I am really worried we are, which is why Zeke Emanuel and I wrote that op-ed in the New York Times about the October surprise. Well, I wanna, I wanna come to the, um, some of these issues around, uh, you say, vac fragile vaccine confidence. Um, but just to this issue of rushing a vaccine, I mean, we have a his historical cases to look at here. I mean, you wrote about the, the cutter Incident. Can you say a little bit about that and what we should know about that as, as a way to think about what could go wrong here? Yeah, I think the hardest part of making a vaccine, I mean, I've only been part of one vaccine, but I, I was fortunately part of a team at Children's Hospital Philadelphia that, that created the strains that became the rotavirus vaccine. That was a 26-year effort. Rotavirus is a virus that causes fever and vomiting and diarrhea. In this country, it would cause about 75,000 children to be hospitalized every year with dehydration and about 60 to die. In the world, it kills about 500,000 children every year before there was a vaccine, So, that, which is basically the same number of people who have died totally of COVID-19 um, this virus did that every year in the world. So hence your interest in making a vaccine. But um, And that was roughly a 26-year effort. But, but what I learned from all that, the hardest part of making a vaccine is making the vaccine, mass producing the vaccine. I mean, that was, that was what happened with the polio vaccine. I mean, that was warp speed one which is to say, while they were doing that trial to see whether or not the vaccine worked, to see whether or not the vaccine was safe, five companies mass produced it at risk. Now, now, the risk was taken away from them financially because the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis or March of Times paid for that. So the companies really weren't paying for anything. If the vaccine didn't work, the, the, that vaccine would have all been thrown away. But it did, did work. Then came the, the problem. I mean, what we found out when that vaccine was then released in the United States in April of 1955, that one of the companies, Cutter Laboratories of Berkeley, California, made it badly. They didn't inactivate the virus well enough. And so as a consequence, 120,000 children were inoculated 
with live, fully virulent polio virus. Uh, you know, of that uh, 120,000, 40,000 developed short-lived polio, 164 children were permanently paralyzed and 10 were killed. I think it was the worst biological disaster in this country's history and gave birth to vaccine regulation. But the, all the companies had trouble in activating the virus. It was should have been called more accurately the scale-up incident because scaling up is hard to do. I mean, it's not hard to make a few hundred doses in your laboratory and then test it in phase one or even phase two trials. It's really hard to make millions of doses because a lot can go wrong. I mean, you have to have the right buffering agent. You have to have the right stabilizing agent. You have to do real-time stability studies. You have to have the right vial. You have to make sure that when it goes out from your, uh, from your manufacturing plant, that it's stable. You know, that, that, it, that it, when it goes to the tarmac, from the tarmac to the person's arm, that it can extend high temperatures and, and stand low temperatures. That's hard to do. I mean, we're talking endlessly about Moderna's messenger RNA vaccine. The messenger RNA just contains that gene right. that goes for the spike protein of, of coronavirus. That's the protein that attaches to cells. If you can prevent the virus from attaching to cells, you can prevent the virus from infecting cells. So all the strategies to make a vaccine uh, are directed at that protein. So hence the mRNA. Well, mRNA is a pretty labile molecule. I mean, it doesn't, the good news is it breaks down quickly in your body. The bad news is it breaks down quickly outside of your body. So you have to find a way to stabilize. And this has never been done before. This has never been scaled up before. So you have a, a um, this, this uh, complex lipid delivering system that you have to use that's never been tested before. I mean, you take a step back for a moment about, about where we are with this virus. Here's a virus that's been around for seven months. It, it's, a, it's a bat coronavirus that just made its debut in the human population. We've already found a few things that are surprising. One, it doesn't act like a typical, typical respiratory virus from the winter. I mean, flu's gone, yet this virus still rages. Um, it, it causes this unusual disease in children, the so-called Kawasaki's-like disease and toxic shock syndrome-like disease. Human coronaviruses don't do that. I mean, that's a surprise. It also affects the vessels, causing vasculitis, inflammation of the blood vessels, which causes this sort of hyper, you know, clotting syndrome. Human coronaviruses don't do that either. So that's three surprises. Here's a fourth surprise, by the way, which was discussed recently on a podcast called This Week in Virology. Um, John Udell, who's the head of virus research at uh, NIH, brought this up. It's interesting. I mean, there are people who get infected with this virus who have symptoms, significant symptoms, who never develop neutralizing antibodies, meaning antibodies that neutralize the virus's ability to infect the cell. Never develop it. Now, the protein that induces neutralizing antibody is abundant on the surface of that virus, and the virus is reproducing itself thousands of times. You see that protein over and over again, but you don't make an immune response to it? Why? I mean, it, he brings up the possibility that this virus may have an immune suppressive effect, like the AIDS virus. I mean, that's surprising. And the other thing wow. that's surprising, sorry, this is what happens when you get a virologist on the show. The other thing that's surprising- No, me, keep going. We're into five now. Go ahead. Yeah. Let's rant. Um, the other thing that's surprising is that people will, the, the test that they, people do to see whether or not you're infected is something called PCR, polymerase chain, chain reaction. Well, that doesn't de it detect infectious virus. It detects virus genome. It detects the RNA viral genome, which is what is the genome of this virus. Um, you, you shed infectious virus for five days, seven days. You can be positive by PCR for, for as long as 12 weeks which means is what, what that says is because because this messenger RNA that the virus makes is very labile. That what the virus is doing is it's making continues to make its genome, but it doesn't make whole virus particles. Why would it ever do that? 
So now you have five big surprises from this virus. To meet this, what we're doing, Warp Speed, has five vaccines in it, five vaccines, um, none of which are commercial product that has any um, analogy to a commercial product in the United States. I mean, if you if you took the virus, for example, and, and made an inactivated viral vaccine, take the virus, grow it up, kill, kill it with a chemical, there are va- examples of that, inactivated polio vaccine, hepatitis A vaccine, rabies vaccine are all inactivated viral vaccines. The strategies that are being used to this, so-called genetic strategies, mRNA, DNA, the so-called replication defective simian or human adenoviruses, um, this this vesicular stomatitis virus, which is what we use to make the Ebola vaccine, but that's not a licensed product in the U.S. Um, none of those are licensed products in the U.S. Not, none of those have, have an analogy to a licensed product. So you have this bad coronavirus that has all these surprises that you're going to meet with with strategies, vaccine strategies that have never been used before. I mean, don't we think it's remotely possible that we're going to learn some things over the next two years that we don't know now, that we wish we knew now? So that's why it really bothers me when you hear these these uh, companies like Johnson & Johnson, who is working with... Uh, you know, um, with the simian, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, the replication defective adenovirus 29, or uh, AstraZeneca, which is working with the UK group, the Jenner Institute group at the, at the University of Oxford on a replication defective um, uh, simian adenovirus. I mean, these have never been tested before. People, they're so confident, and they, they those press releases are so confident. How about a little humility? Why don't we assume we're going to learn some stuff? I mean, sorry, one last part of this, man. I was fortunate enough to work yeah. on a rotavirus vaccine. Like, rotaviruses were known to be a cause of disease in animals since the 40s. They were known to be cause of disease in humans since the 70s. Okay, so decades of experience with this virus, decades of published right. with this virus. When that vaccine, the first rotavirus vaccine came out in, uh, in 1998, um, it was found to be a rare cause of intestinal blockage so-called intussusceptible, was taken off the market in 10 months. Mm. That was a surprise. And that was after decades of experience with that virus. Here you have a virus where you have seven months of experience. You have these novel vaccine strategies. I really wish people would stop being so sure of themselves because nature gives up its secrets slowly and grudgingly and invariably with a human cost. And I just wish people would put on the brakes a little bit. I'm done. I'm done with my rant. That's it. It's not a rant. It's it's uh, everything we need to know about the, the complexity of the situation from the scientific perspective. And I and I I want to ask you, I guess, connected with that, then what does it say to you about Americans that they seem to be so confident that we will have a vaccine quickly? I mean, I wonder about the relationship between these these two things, because at some point, Trump and others, many others across political spectrum, said, you know, maybe this got away from us, but we'll get the vaccine and then let's just ride it out till then. There's this sort of notion that that technological fix to this medical disaster is out there waiting for us. And you're telling us here, slow down, guys, this is enormously complicated and there's a lot to learn. Why do we have such faith in this? Not that we have faith in a vaccine itself, but that it can come so quickly. Where does that come from, do you think? I think we believe in the magic pill. I mean, just walk into a GNC center and you'll see what I mean. But it's, you know, that there's this magic fix to things that, I mean, I think certainly Trump supports that hydroxychloroquine, you know, Clorox chewables, whatever. I just, you know, that, that there's this thing that makes it all go away. I do think people should, first of all, 
let's take the optimistic point of view that we will have data by the beginning of next year that shows that one or more of these vaccines is safe, at least in 20,000 people, and is effective at least for a short period of time. We're not going to know how long this, these, these vaccines are effective until they're out there for a while, but at least effective for a short period of time. Realize this, it's, it's in all likelihood, given that this is a respiratory virus, um, in all likelihood, it will act like other respiratory viruses, which is to say that the protection will be afforded by the vaccine will be incomplete and short-lived. By incomplete, what I mean is you'll be protected against moderate disease. You'll be protected against severe disease, which is good because that'll keep you out of the hospital and will keep you out of the morgue. But you're probably not going to be protected against um, asymptomatic infection once exposed and probably not protected against mild symptoms associated with uh, with uh, exposure, which may mean you're still shedding, it's right. which, which is going to be a, right. an issue. And if you have, there's a formula for this, actually, but but Tony Fauci was on, Dr. Fauci was on uh, television today on CNN, and he said he hoped that the vaccine would be 70 or 75 percent effective. If it's 75 percent effective, which would be great, I think everybody would be really excited about that if it was 75 percent effective. If it's 75 percent effective, then you're going to need to vaccinate at least two thirds of the U.S. population to stop spread, meaning to get that so-called R naught, the reproducibility index to less than one. Two thirds of the population are going to be have to inoc- have to be inoculated with a two dose vaccine. That's a lot to ask, especially in a population that isn't even willing to wear a mask. So we'll see how this plays right. out. It's not going to all go away. Even if there's a vaccine that's effective at 75 percent level, it'll probably take us, assuming the virus continues to do what it's been doing, probably take us a couple of years to get to the point that we can say the transmission has been stopped. What do you expect is the overlap? the Venn diagram between those who are unwilling to wear a mask and those who would not be willing to take a first batch, first round, first pass of a COVID-19 vaccine? See, I don't know. I mean, I think it, it, there is an anti-vaccine sentiment in this country. It's true. I mean, the reason, I mean, we eliminated measles from this country by the year 2000. It's back principally because a critical number of parents have chosen not to vaccinate their children. And people bring that up a lot in these discussions uh, on TV. But but this isn't measles. Uh, you know, th- this is a virus that is killing a thousand people a day in this country. This is a virus that's making it hard for us to walk outside, uh, you know, without wearing a mask. Right. It, it, this is different. I, I think if, if we had a, a vaccine that at least was safe in 20,000 people, a vaccine that at least was effective at, say, the 70 or 75 percent level, level, I think people would get this vaccine. I, I have to believe that's true mm-hmm. because then they can feel more protected against moderate severe right. disease, which is reasonable. But I think we have to explain ourselves. And do you, we have to manage expectations. I think once we know what the data are with the, the, these vaccines, and I think it'll be more than one vaccine that rolls out in the U.S., we need to really educate the public about what we know, what we don't know, what we're looking for, so you can uh, manage expectations. So I, I know you're not um, too hopeful for the, the October or November rollout, what would you think would be a reasonable time frame that we could begin to see vaccine, even at that 75% effectiveness rate? Meaning when would we be getting it, you mean? Yeah. I think early early next year. Yeah, possible that if everything works well, if we do trials in, in areas, hot spots where there's enough disease in the placebo group that you can really make reasonable claims about efficacy, then I think, I think we could have a vaccine by early next year, assuming everything works well. And... What's the procedure for determining um, 
who should have access to it first. I mean, I, I don't really understand how that how that works. Does the federal government set guidelines for that? Does that done state by state? Who gets to say who gets it and who doesn't? Well, the CDC, I think. I mean, the CDC on Wednesday had something called an advisory committee for immunization practices meeting just this a few days ago. And the, the statement that was made was that the, the first group to receive these vaccines will be who you expect, say frontline responders, meaning people who work in healthcare industry, um, people who work in pharmacies, groceries, uh, people who work in meatpacking plants, people who work in nursing homes, people who work in mass transit. Th those are the people who probably would get it first. And then we'll work down. I can tell you this, though, at least the way that we have uh, directed this at the NIH level is that I don't think children actually are initially going to be tested to see whether the vaccine works in them I, because they're, they're such a low priority group that they, they get, they're much more or less likely to get this disease. When they get it, they get it less severely and for a shorter duration. So I, I don't think they're going to be the first group tested. I, you know, you want to make sure mm -hmm. that you tested it in, in a representative population of the United States before it gets out there, the representative number of African-Americans, mm -hmm. Hispanic-Americans, Asian-Americans, older Americans, um, you know, women, including right. women who are pregnant, you know, you have to, you have to do all, they have to check all those boxes. Children are not going to be a, for an early box. I wanted to come to a question, just remind everybody you're listening to COVID calls and you can get your questions in on YouTube live in the chat. This is a question from Caroline Slama. Um, she's asking, can Dr. Offit explain the current thinking on COVID-19 and antibody dependent enhancement? So you'll have to explain to me a little bit about what that means and does uh, that affect vaccine testing? Um, so what antibody dependent enhancement means, and the best example of this would be dengue virus. Um, okay. when you're, there are four different types of dengue virus. When you're infected with one type um, and then you're infected with a, a second type, um, you actually have a much worse disease than you did the first time. And it's because what happens is the antibodies that you generated really sort of bind to the virus but don't neutralize it. And therefore, what the, when they bind to it, they actually bring it into the cells through something called the FC receptor of the uh, of the, the sort of the non-business end of the antibody molecule. Um, that's, that's an unusual occurrence. Um, it, it, is, it is possible that could happen here if you get a lot of binding antibodies but don't get neutralizing antibodies. People are looking at that. The thing that worries me more, actually, is, is not antibody-dependent enhancement. It's something else. Um, in the 1960s, we had a vaccine against something called respiratory syncytial virus, which is a, is a respiratory virus, it sounds like it is a respiratory virus, and still causes thousands of children, really young children, to die every year in the United States. So the way that vaccine was made was they took the virus and inactivated it with a chemical, formaldehyde. When children got that vaccine, they and then they were exposed to the natural virus, the wild-type virus, the virus that's circulating, um, they did worse if they got the vaccine if they hadn't gotten the vaccine. They were more likely to develop pneumonia, more likely to be hospitalized, and more likely to die if they got the vaccine than they hadn't gotten the vaccine. I'm going to explain why in a second and why it matters here. Also in the 1960s, there was a measles vaccine that was made the same way. Take the virus and activate it with formaldehyde. And the same thing happened. Children who got that vaccine were worse off than children who didn't get the vaccine. They had something called atypical measles and measles pneumonia. Both of those viruses have on their surface, the, the part of the virus that attaches to cells actually is a fusion protein, meaning the virus is fused to the cell, which is unusual. Not all viruses do that. Some just attach and enter by a process called endocytosis. This is a fusion issue. Now, why does that matter here? The spike protein on coronavirus is a fusion protein. So, you know, if you make an inactivated vaccine, as, as the Chinese are doing, actually, they have an, an activated vaccine that's already in phase three trials in Brazil. They didn't use formaldehyde. 
good idea. They use something called beta proprolactone, which is what we use to inactivate the rabies vaccine. So I think they're going to be fine with uh, There are systems in place to make sure it doesn't happen. The so-called vaccine safety data link. The minute these vaccines roll out in the United States, because not everybody's going to get them all at once, you're going to know who got them and who didn't get them through this linked computerized medical record system with a variety of large HMO health maintenance organizations. Um, so whether they're problem. I don't think there's going to be a problem, but but people are looking for it. You know, any any product that has a positive effect will have a negative effect by definition. That's true in every aspect mm-hmm. of medicine. You just want to make sure that the benefits clearly and dramatically outweigh the risks. And obviously, the benefits of this vaccine are great when a thousand people are dying every day. So, but there are there. I think it would be silly to think there will be no risks to this vaccine. They are. There will be, and we'll learn about them as we go. And I suspect that they're going to be far less than the benefits of, of the uh, products. Can you just sketch out uh, a general sense for us, the legal liability for pharmaceutical companies putting a new vaccine on the market for the first time with something like this coronavirus? I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, I assume if the vaccine is recommended um, by the, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which I am sure it will be, um, then I, I imagine it becomes covered by the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. So that there's, um, hmm. there, so that you don't, you can't sue a pharmaceutical company directly. You have to first go through this so-called vaccine court, which at least puts a firewall to some extent between the company and the civil litigant. Um, and I imagine that's the way it'll play out. It may play out the way that um, that the swine flu vaccine played out in 1976, which is the government just covers all liability. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Is something like that done on the on the? The front end to inspire companies into the marketplace that the government will send signals that there would be this sort of backstop there in case something went wrong or does it happen the other end that the litigation and political pressure builds and then you get a sort of compensation fund in your in your experience no well we have there's a compensation fund in place the so-called vaccine injury compensation program so i, I imagine things will would go through there it would make the most sense um it's it's the most it's I the see. fairest way to do it i see so obviously, um, I'm a professor at a university. You're a professor at a university. Um, we're having these discussions all summer as to what it's going to look like to try to bring college students back to a campus. Uh, states that have even taken a conservative approach, like New Jersey and Pennsylvania and New York, are talking about bringing students back in the classroom in the fall. What's your sense of the wisdom of that right now? And, and can we do that without a vaccine? Well, we can certainly do it without a vaccine. I guess the question is, can we do it reasonably? Um, well, should we do it? Should we do it without a vaccine? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think, I really do think children should go back to school. And they are a very low-risk group. And, and, and you have to do the best you can to have make sure people wear masks when they're inside and close together. Um, the people I worry about more there are the teachers who, who are older and may have comorbidities. Right. But... I mean, because there is another side to that. I mean, when they stay home, first of all, it's very hard. Learning at home doesn't work very well, frankly. And 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 when they stay home, they're more likely to be around grandma and grandpa. So, and the parents aren't able to work because they have to take care of their children at home. So there's so many ripple effects of not sending kids to school. Personally, I think they should go. But again, I'm the, the best person to ask that question to is Dave Rubin, who's head of the policy lab at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's a wizard on this kind of stuff. I'm just a virologist with an opinion. Are you still, are you teaching at this time? Sure. Well, I mean, yeah, well, I, I taught uh, teaching online. Yeah. With uh, some courses. Yeah. yeah. Another course starting in August that uh, I'm, I'm, uh, the cell molecular biology uh, vaccines and immune therapeutics course we're going to be teaching. So, yeah, I still teach. 
and the first ones you've taught on first time you've taught online these these subjects or have you done done that before no it's the first time i've done it it's weird what you have know, you learned i learned that you know you if you make jokes you can't tell whether or not you're funny because you can't see whether people are laughing that's the first thing you just, then you're really making jokes to yourself um that was one thing. Also, you obviously feed off the crowd. You know, you you can tell whether you're connecting with your audience or not. But when you're online, you really can't tell. And um, so it's not nearly as fun. So the kind of more informal tools you use as a teacher or a speaker, you feel a little cut off from those, I suppose. Right. Yeah, yeah I felt the same way myself. Um, I wanted to, since you're so prolific um, and you just have a book out, and I, I wanted to ask you if you wanted to talk a little bit about, about the most recent book. Sure. Yes, yeah, so I wrote a book called Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. It's um, published by HarperCollins in April, but it's, it's about sort of 15 situations in modern medicine for which there's abundant scientific evidence that we shouldn't be doing something, but we do it anyway, like treating fever, finishing the antibiotic course, prostate screening programs, which don't save lives, uh, thyroid cancer screening programs, which don't save lives. Um, the, the, you know, vitamin D, I think, is largely a hoax, but, you know, in terms of the degree to which it's used. Um, so, so I go through those sort of situations, you know, the business about, you know, doing, putting in cardiac stents, which has gotten me the most negative feedback. But um, I just go through the data. I mean, I, I try and explain the, 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 the data that's out there in the simplest way possible and compel the, 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 the listener to at least or the reader to at least ask better questions when they go to, to their to their doctor's office. Because mm -hmm. um, there are, I mean, there are certainly things that I learned when I was a, a pediatric resident that were wrong. And, and that's still true today. Um, why, why we, we don't, you know, when you start to feel better when you're getting your antibiotic, you're probably done. Um, there's now abundant evidence that shows you're done. I mean, why do we pick an arbitrary length of time at the beginning of illness? You know, you have to treat your, you know, your bladder infection for seven days when after three days, your urine's clear, your fever's gone, your plane's gone. I mean, you're good. Um, and why seven days? It's always right. like some multiple, you know, the, it's not, bacteria don't reproduce themselves on the base of the lunar month. So I don't know why we assign a time at the beginning of illness. And the premise was always wrong. Because the premise is always like, well, if you don't finish your course, then you're, you're going to create resistance strains. The opposite is true, not surprisingly. The longer you treat, the more likely you are to create resistance, as study after study has shown. But we just can't seem to shake this. In any case, that's one of many examples. I'm going to have to spend some time thinking about what you just said because it completely rewires my brain and what I've been told my whole <laughs> life. Take the full course of antibiotics because that last germ that you kill on the 10th day was the true warrior, and you're telling me that's not true. Not true. No. Okay. Um, and but you finished this book before the, the epidemic started, right? So that must be kind of an interesting experience. I mean, as a disaster researcher and person who writes about disasters, and I have a lot of colleagues in the same place, you know, we're writing about something, and then all of a sudden, September 11 happens. We're writing about something else, and then Katrina happens, and the whole world seems to tilt a little bit. Have you started a COVID-19 project? No, <laughs> I'm still recovering from this. I mean, it's interesting, right? The book comes out in April. There's there's a good thing, right? Because now you have a book that's come out. I mean, the HarperCollins did what they could to promote it. I, I love the book. Um, but, you know, it's a little hard to, to publish a book when not a single bookstore in the universe is open. And no one on any media yeah. platform wants to talk about anything other than this virus. So... Um, it's been a little yeah. frustrating. I'm sure much more frustrating for the PR people at HarperCollins, but um, I, I imagine that this will settle down at some point. Well, I hope people will pick it up. Overkill when modern medicine goes 
goes too far. And I mean, to make it even harder for you, at least for some period of time, if you ordered it um, via uh, a uh, internet uh, service uh, provider like Amazon or somebody like that, we had to be concerned that uh, we might get sick even touching the box when it came to our house. And I'm not hearing recommendations about scrubbing our mail much anymore. Um, but it's, yeah, I'm sure it will. I'm, I'm sure that people will pick it up and read it. But um, the hardship that you're describing is one that, you know, people who've been working on disaster projects coming into this year, myself included, all of a sudden it's like, uh, I've got to add a few new chapters here because this is really shaking a lot of what we thought about how disasters were managed in the United States. And I guess with that in mind, I mean, how is this changing the way you think about um, pandemics and politics in America? Is this, hopefully this is some sort of exceptional moment or do you think something fundamental has shifted in the way that our surveillance and our management of a national scale pandemic works? Oh, I think at an international scale, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, I think, this is not going to be the last um, novel virus to start to sweep across the country. I mean, SARS was, was a warning shot. MERS was another warning shot. And then this was the big one because it can be transmitted without symptoms, which I think means everybody is potentially a shedder who could hurt you. And no, I'd like to think there are now systems that will be put in place, especially international surveillance systems. You know, you had... China, you had to really rely on a whistleblower in China to tell you that a virus was sweeping through Wuhan and killing people. That shouldn't, it should never have happened. I mean, we should have known about that immediately and didn't. And I think that should be true for wherever part, whatever part of the world the next virus props up, crops up on. But I'd like to think that is a permanent lesson learned. And as far as medical education goes, do you see any, any changes in this moment as a, as a result of COVID-19? I don't know. I mean, it, certainly I think it's going to change businesses. I mean, you know, do you really need to travel as much now that everybody is, you know, it's sort of having these Zoom calls? I'm sure it'll change business. I'm sure it'll change travel, national, international travel. I'm not sure if it'll change education. I mean, I hope, I hope not. I mean, I hope we get to go back and teach in person again, because I really don't like this sort of Zoom teaching. It's not as much fun for me. Well, something you said a minute ago was, uh, and you've written about the anti-vaccination I don't know if we call that a movement or politics, whatever it is, a, a, a worldview. Um, but I thought it was interesting that you said that the, the the urgency of this may tamp down some of that. I mean, you really understand that that movement inside out. Um, what do you what do you think in this particular moment? Is is are we in a space where COVID nineteen fear is such that it can overwhelm maybe the the sort of forces of the anti-vaccination movement, or is that now just too politically strong? It's too structured in our society, and it's always going to be there as a form of politics. Well, so I think there's two groups. I think that the the group which is the most common are people who are just skeptical about vaccines, which is reasonable. I think you should be skeptical of anything you put in your body. I think everybody that sits around the table at the va FDA's vaccine advisory committee is skeptical about vaccines. We want to see the data, um, sure. and that's most people. They they're, they they don't see these diseases anymore. Do they really need to get these vaccines? I mean, but they're convincible. They're convincible with logic and reason and data. I think that the true anti-vaccine activist, to me, is a conspiracy theorist. They just they just think there's a big conspiracy that's run by the pharmaceutical industry that has the government in their pocket and the medical establishment in their pocket. And they're, they're not going to believe anything you say. They, they, they're, they're immune to logic and reason and data. So forget it. I, they're, they're, but they're, they're a very small percentage of people. So I think the other thing that people don't consider is when, when people are, are scared of about that, people often equate the safety of a vaccine with the, the, um, the danger of the virus. So people are sort of 
they're scared of an Ebola vaccine or an anthrax vaccine because they're, those are such frightening diseases, but as if the vaccine then would be more dangerous, which isn't true. I mean, that's not logical. That's not true. going to be true here uh, either. So I think that's also sort of part of it. I see. Well, we're almost up on time. I got one question in, and it's actually a good one to, to end with. It's very broad, but I like it. And it's what's one change you would like to see in the United States as a result of this pandemic we're living through? <laughs> Other than the obvious one, which is one. Well, you get one. They <laughs> fire Bill Barr. No, just kidding. I, that's not what you want to hear. Um, what one change in the United States as a result of this pandemic? Well, that we, that we have a pandemic preparedness program that's in place so we can have PPEs quickly, so that we can, you know, make sure that we can 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 do the kinds of work on antivirals or whatever quickly. Uh, to, to put that in place, I mean, this hopefully has scared us straight. I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls tomorrow at five o'clock. We're going to be having the fifth of our Academy of Natural Sciences conversations. Going to be talking to Julian Siggers of the Penn Museum and Scott Cooper of the Academy of Natural Sciences. And you can catch COVID calls every day at five o'clock Eastern time. Paul Offit, it was a really powerful hour. Thanks a lot for making time for this discussion. Thank you, Scott. My pleasure. Enjoy. Stay safe. Stay healthy, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks. Thanks.